0: Today we're going to be uh, looking at the minor prophet book of Haggai, so if you would please uh, turn there. Uh, You'll notice uh, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs there, in some cases we have Bibles in sort of the rack there, you'll see the page number. This is a hard passage to to find. It's such a small little book, only two chapters, uh, 35, 40 verses total in it, so it is a tiny little book. You may have difficulty if you're just flipping. And of course, there is never any shame in looking at the table of contents. It'll tell you the page number uh, in your particular Bible, and you can go there. But we have been together, we've been making our way through a number of those minor prophet books. Uh, There's 12 of them, you may recall, and we take three or four at a time, and so we have been doing that. And most recently, it it began in the summertime because I remember we were outside, we started Uh, with the book of Nahum, and then we did the book of Habakkuk, and then the book of Zephaniah we just completed. And so today and and the next time we're together, we'll be working our way through this small little book, the book of Haggai. Now those first three books that I mentioned, uh, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, you may remember I had said they were books that were written to the southern kingdom of the Jewish people. Remember the the Jewish people, uh, they underwent a civil war, and there was a northern kingdom that kept that name Israel. And then there was a southern kingdom that went by the name of Judah. Judah being the largest tribe that comprised those, that particular group of people. That, those three books that I had mentioned to you, they were written to that southern tribe or that southern kingdom. They were written to the nation of Judah. Part of the reason why they weren't written to the northern kingdom is because the northern kingdom had already been taken away into captivity. You remember in 722 BC, the Assyrians, that northern nation, came in and attacked and defeated the northern kingdom and took the people away into captivity. But the southern kingdom remained, and it did so for about another 140 years or so before they themselves were taken off into captivity. Nahum, Habakkuk, Uh, Zephaniah, they were all written before their exile. And so we call those books, we classify those books as pre-exilic books, exile taken away into captivity. They were books that were written before they were taken away into captivity. As we come now to the books of Haggai, the book of Zechariah, and the book of uh, Malachi, these are all books that were written after they had been in captivity, all right? So these are called post-exilic books. So there's pre, there's post, and then you have a book like the book of Daniel that was written while they were in exile. What do you think we call that one? We call it exilic or whatever you said. Exilic? That sounds good. That sounds real good, all right? So we are going to be looking at a book that was written after the people had been out of the land for a period of time after they had been captives in a foreign land and have had the opportunity to come back to the land. All right, so again, the Assyrian captivity, that affected the northern kingdom. That's 722 BC. The Babylonian captivity is going to affect the southern kingdom, and that happened over a period of time. There were three waves of the Babylonians coming in, Uh, And it's going to fall right around the year 600 B.C., all right? And so uh, with that, we're going to start our way by jumping into this book of Haggai Um, before we do. However, remember, God predicted this day was coming. We looked at that in our last... A couple of our last studies, we called that the day of the Lord, a day of God's special intervention into the affairs of men. God had been calling his people to repent of their sin. They refused to do so. God brought discipline or judgment upon his people, not just to get even with them, but for a purpose, to teach them, to bring them back to themselves, like the prodigal son, so that they would come to their senses. What am I doing? Why am I acting in this particular way? Why am I responding in this way and ignoring God's leading? And so God said this day was coming. The people refused to turn from their wicked ways. And so the captivity came. Please, though, one other point. Please remember that God had a purpose in this. And that was to teach them, to break them, to bring them to the end of themselves. And God promised them, just as he promised them judgment would come, he promised them restoration would come as well. That the time would come where they would learn their lesson, they would repent, and they would return, and literally they would be brought back into the land. And that's where we are. That's uh, where the, the children of Israel are, or excuse me, Judah are. They're back in the land. They're back in the southern kingdom. They're back in the city of Jerusalem. And now there's a message for them, a prophetic message, which is the book of Haggai. There's a whole bunch of Old Testament books that it would do you well to study alongside of your study of the book of Haggai. Uh, We know that Zechariah, the very next book, we're going to spend some time there. We know that that particular book, that that particular man, Zechariah, was a contemporary of Haggai. They interacted at the same time with one another, gave messages to the people at the exact same time. So we're gonna start studying it in in two weeks. You may wanna start reading that particular minor prophet book. There's a few historical books that speak about the time period that we're talking about, the book of Ezra and the book of uh, Nehemiah, uh, which I believe the ladies are studying on Friday mornings, uh, those couple of books. You may want to take some time to read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah to get a fuller understanding of the time period that Haggai, the prophet, is speaking into. We'll reference them during our study this week and next. This morning, however, we're going to begin in the book of Daniel. And so if you would, please turn to Daniel chapter 5. Keep your finger in the book of Haggai. It was so hard to find, Uh, you don't want to lose it now, all right? But as I said, Haggai and Zechariah, they're post-exilic books. Daniel is actually an exilic book. It was written during the period of the exile of the Jews from the place of that exile, which was the city of Babylon. Babylon. In the history of the world, there have been a number of sort of world-ruling empires, And the Bible tracks a number of those world-ruling empires that—and we'll put world in quotations because, uh, like, for instance, the Chinese dynasty was going on, but it didn't have a direct impact on the Jewish people. The Bible chronicles some of the world-ruling empires that did have a direct impact on the Jewish people. And so, no doubt, you recall going all the way back to the patriarch Joseph, you remember that Egypt— One time ruled the world and had a direct impact on the Jewish people, enslaving the Jewish people for 400 years. Gradually, the Egyptian Empire sort of waned in its power and its influence. It was replaced by the Assyrian Empire, a world ruling power that had uh, influence on the world, particularly Israel, for almost 700 years. The Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire, as we learned in our study of the book of Nahum, was defeated by. We didn't learn it, apparently. We're going to do it again. Turn to Book of Nahum. We're going to start all over again. Uh, It was the Book of Nahum. Remember? Uh, I think it was 612 B.C., the Battle of Nineveh and how the Babylonians came in and they destroyed it. For context, we were outside studying it. Maybe you remember uh, that particular study. And so the Babylonian Empire became this sort of world-ruling power. Well, the Babylonian Empire, they too fell. As all of those other world-ruling empires did, they too fell. And the fall of Babylon is recorded for us in Daniel chapter 5. Now, I'll let you read Daniel chapter 5 on your own. It's a, it's a fascinating chapter. Uh, you know, we talk about God's special intervention into the affairs of men. That's a perfect example of God's special intervention into the affairs of men. But I'll let you read it on your own. But the, the gist of it is, is the king of Babylon decided to throw a huge drinking party one particular evening, much like the Ninevites did uh, 70-some years earlier, this huge drinking party. And it was that very night that the nation fell. Uh, he also decided at that drinking party to use the temple ve- uh, vessels uh, and kind of mock the God of Israel. That's a mistake, uh, and he did that. But, and that was the night that he fell. Rather than reading the whole chapter, you can do that on your own. Look at the last two verses of the chapter. That's verse 30 and 31. It says, that very night, Belshazzar, that's the king, the Chaldean king. The Chaldean is another name for the Babylonians. That very night, Belshazzar the king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so we went from the Egyptians to the Assyrians to the Babylonians. On this particular night, Daniel 5 tells us, is the start of another world-ruling power, what became known as the Medes and the Persians, or the Medo-Persian Empire. And as you see in that particular verse, Darius the Mede was in charge of that medo Persian Empire. That event, we know historically, we can go exactly to the date, that event was uh, was 539 BC. It was only a few short years after that that permission was given to the Jewish people. Remember, the Jews are in Babylon as captives. It was only a couple of years after 539 BC that permission was given to the Jews. If you want to go back to Jerusalem, you can probably not just the Jews, to the other people that were taken from other parts of the world, look, you can go back to your land if you want to. They would still be subjects of the Medo-Persian Empire and the the Medo-Persian king, but they could be subjects from their land as long as they promised to pay their tributes and, uh, and all those kinds of things. And so we know when that particular event occurred as well, which is right around 537 BC. Now the actual king that gave them permission to do so wasn't this fellow by the name of Darius. It was actually a guy by the name of Cyrus. And his name pops up a bunch of times in our Bible. Uh, So who's the king? Is it Cyrus or is it this guy Darius? The best way to think of it is this way. Cyrus was the emperor. Darius was a governor. And they use the word king many times to describe a governor. So Cyrus, Medo-Persian empire, he led the entire kingdom While this fellow Darius was placed in charge of a portion of the kingdom, which was the city or the the country of Babylon. But Cyrus is the guy that officially gave the Jews permission. You can go back to Jerusalem if you want. That's recorded for us in our Bibles too. And so if you want to flip over, we'll put it up on the screen. But if you want to, so you can see it in your Bible, it's found in two locations, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, Ezra chapter 1. They're almost identical word for word in those two passages. We'll look at the Ezra one. Ezra chapter one, it begins this way. It says, now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, remember him, the prophet, that it might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, the thing about Cyrus, we have no real indication that he became a believer in, uh, in Jehovah or in Yahweh, and yet God could still work in his life, right? There's that, that proverb that talks about that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. It's like a river that he moves wherever he wants to move it, the Lord that is. And he does that here with this fellow by the name of Cyrus. He stirs up his spirit. You see there in verse 1, it talks about that the word of the Lord came by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet. Well, you've heard of the book. You've seen it. You've probably read the book in your Bibles. Jeremiah the prophet was the one who said that the people would be out of the land for 70 years. Not more, not less. You remember God gave Jeremiah sort of this picture. And he said, here's what I want you to do. Yeah, I know the armies have surrounded Jerusalem and I know they're about to attack it. I want you to go down to the courthouse and I want you to start buying as much land as you can in Jerusalem. Well, that doesn't make any sense. We're about to lose all the land. The enemy is about to come in. They're about to take it over. And God says to him, essentially, yeah, they're going to take it over. Go buy the land. Get the deed. Put it in a little bottle or something. I don't know if they put it in a bottle. But, you know, put it somewhere. Hide it in the dirt somewhere so that when we come back to this land 70 years, you'll own the portion that you come back to. 70 years. That's the point that he's referencing here so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So here we are 70 years later. And God stirs the heart of a foreign king, a man by the name of Cyrus, so that Cyrus, continuing, made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom, and he put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, for he is the God who is in Jerusalem. That's the decree specifically giving permission to the Jews. You can go back to Jerusalem if you want. You can leave Babylon. that You, you're, you, know, you and your family have been here for 70 years, and you can go back to Jerusalem if you so desire. Now, you would expect... That every single Jew were like, I'm getting out of here. Then can't wait to get out of here. This is great. The cell is open and they're letting us go. In reality, the vast majority of Jewish people in exile did not go. We have the number relatively actually relatively few actually did. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews in captivity, and according to the Book of Ezra, chapter two, less than fifty thousand took the king up on his offer and went back to the land. We have the number. Ezra 2.64 says, Now the whole assembly together that returned was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were another 7,337, and 200 male and female singers. So you do the math, it's about 50,000 people that returned to the land. You have permission to go back. And many didn't. Now to be fair... There were some great men of God, like Daniel, that didn't go back. And that's probably because Daniel was almost 90 at the time, and he physically couldn't go back. But the vast majority of people didn't go back because, believe it or not, life was somewhat comfortable, even in exile. They could own their own businesses. They could own their own homes. What they were doing in Babylon is what they were going to be given permission to do, just remain subject to us over there, do the things that we make you do, pay the money we expect that you to pay. And so people had become comfortable. Their kids were in schools, they were in local sports leagues, they had a nice home. Everything was working out for them, and they were content to stay. The vast majority did. And so even though they were inhabitants that were in exile, in a place that wasn't God's promised best, remember the promised land was God's promised best, Where they were wasn't that bad after all. And so many of them chose to remain there. On top of that, Jerusalem was a mess. Jerusalem had been an abandoned city for 70 years. Has there ever been a part of your backyard that you've abandoned for a while? You had an old garden there, you're all motivated for a period of time, and then you haven't touched it for a few years. Does it improve or does it get crazy worse? Obviously it gets crazy worse, it's a mess. And then you look at it and you think, oh my gosh, so much work. And so you leave it that way for 10 years. Well, the land of Jerusalem was a mess for 70 years. The city lay in ruins, it was under rubble. The, the ground and the places where they would plant their food and all of that, that had been cultivated for 70 years. It was gonna be a lot of work to go back to Jerusalem And you know what, it's pretty comfortable right here where we are. And again, the kids are playing in the local school and they're playing in their sports leagues and everything is great here. Like, do we really need to go back? I know it would be awesome if, you know, we could get that place up and running again, but I'm not sure that's something I wanna go through. And so many, the vast majority, as I said, they chose not to return to the land. Now, the reason why I bring it up is because the people that Haggai is going to address are the people that did choose to go back. The people that looked at what was ahead of them, counted the cost and said, this is gonna be super hard, but I'm doing it. Who's with me? Let's go. God is stirring our hearts. Let's do it. These, and it's important that we understand it, is in in some regards, these are the cream of the crop of the congregation. These are people that are sold out for God. These are people that are on fire for him. And if he puts a task in front of them, they're gonna take that task unto themselves. And they're going to do it. And they do. 50,000 of them make their way back. Uh, if we go back to the Ezra book, Ezra describes what God is doing in some of the people's hearts. Here's what he says. It says, then, then they rose up, the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. See that? Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go back and build the house in Jerusalem. This was a move of God that was going on in the heart of some of his people, a remnant of his people. And these people responded to that move. Those individuals that did respond, they went back under the leadership of two men. You're going to see those two men's name a lot in our study of this book and the next book, Zechariah. Those men, their names are Zerubbabel. Sometimes he's referred to as Sheshbazar, which was likely the name he was given while in captivity, like Daniel was given a new name. And then the other fella is a guy by the name of Joshua. So Zerubbabel is the governor of the people, sort of the political leader. Joshua, not the one from the book of Joshua, another one, he was the high priest of the people. And you'll see their names referenced a lot. In many ways, the book of Haggai is spoken to them. It's it's a prophecy that's given to them as the leaders of the people, to encourage the people and stir up the people, and even to stir themselves up as well. Sold out men and women. One more thing I wanted to read to you before we we get into our study. Uh, Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. It tells us, that by the start of the seventh month following Cyrus's permission to go back, that they had already begun to rebuild. So think about that. They're hundreds and hundreds of miles away. They're in a foreign land. Word comes, and it says, hey, the king said we can leave here if we want. People began thinking about it, talking about it, praying about it. It's brought up at the church service. And are you going to go back? You know, my wife and I were talking about it. And the decision is made a week later, maybe. And the people decide they're going to go on that couple-month of journey to get back there. They get back to the land of Jerusalem. Let's now just say we're two months, three months into things. You're with me here? By the sixth month, they're already rebuilding the temple. So God had stirred them. They had responded to that stirring. And then they actually moved forward and did something about that stirring. So Ezra 3.1, it says, Now when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedek, that's Joshua, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings, morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written, and they offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, then the offerings at the new moon, and all of the appointed feasts of the Lord. This means they're obeying God's word. It's the first time in 70 years they're doing these things. And the offerings of everyone who made a free offering, will offering to the Lord, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. They got right to it, is the point, right? You with me? Some of you are wishing you had a cup of water. <laughs> the actual temple building, please remember, wasn't actually even needed for the Jews to worship God, right? Right? For hundreds and hundreds of years, they didn't even have have a temple building. Prior to that, they had a tabernacle, a tent. So they didn't have to really go through this whole process to worship the Lord in this particular way. Matter of fact, here, they're already offering burnt offerings, and the building itself isn't even uh, rebuilt yet. And so it's, it's actually not required for them to do what they were hoping to do. But we see that God began to stir their heart. We are going to do it. We don't have to. But we are going to rebuild this building. Chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Now in the second year after coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, they began this process. So they are jumping in, and they're going to do it. They're going to begin to do the work that God has put in their heart to do. Now, if you've read the book of Ezra lately, and did you guys finish it yet, the women? So they, a lot of the women just finished it. You know that in there uh, that the work of rebuilding the temple sadly ceased so they got back to the land they were fired up they got right to it they didn't delay any time within six months they're already rebuilding it and then for some reason the work stops I'm going to let you add Ezra chapter four to your reading list this week to find out exactly why Um, the important point for us this morning is that the work did stop Now in reality, it paused. They were gonna just take a break. We will get back to it. But as we'll see, they never really did get back to it. And so it brings us now to Haggai chapter one. 30 minutes in to our study. I think that background is important. I hope you find it important as well. Uh, If I could summarize everything that I just said, they go back to the land, they start right away. They're rebuilding, they're fired up, they're excited. But for some reason, the work stops, and that's where we are when the book of Haggai begins. Okay? Haggai chapter 1. Now, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelteel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, in chapter 1 there, where it says, it mentions the name Darius. You may remember where we started today in Daniel chapter 5. It talked about a Darius uh, became the king, that's not the same Darius, all right? Uh, that Darius was a Mede. This particular Darius is a Persian. So we're talking about uh, a different person altogether, same name, different person. This Darius, he began to reign over the Medes and the Persians in 521 B.C. And so the second year, as it says in, in Haggai 1 there, would therefore be 520 B.C., That's just about 15 years after the remnant had returned to the land and began rebuilding the temple. Remember Babylon fell 539 BC. A couple years later, Cyrus gave them permission and they returned. That actually brings us to about 536 BC is when they started it. This guy comes along, his second year is 520 BC. So 16 years later, the temple which they had started rebuilding, they had stopped rebuilding And here they are 16 years later, and it's still nothing is happening. We see in verse 2, the prophet begins and he's saying, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And so again, he's not addressing starting the project. He's addressing starting it back up again. Ezra 4.24, it says, Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Now, I want to go back to something that I began with. These are the 50,000 people in the land that were, so to speak, the cream of the crop of the congregation. Everyone in Babylon was given the opportunity to go back. Most of the people said, I don't know, I like it here. It's comfortable here. That's too much work. I don't feel like going back there. But there were 50,000 that said, what, God is stirring our hearts? We gotta follow where God is going. Wherever he leads me, I will go. These are, if you will, the cream of the crop of the Jewish people. They're excited about the work of God. They're diligent to begin the work of God. But due to various pressers, both internal and external, that were coming against them, they made the decision to stop And for 15 years, they did not return to the work that God had laid on their heart. And it's going to be Haggai's job, and later on we'll see Zechariah's job, to mobilize the people, to motivate the people, to resume the undertaking that God had put in their hearts. This is speaking to my life this week, and maybe it'll speak to yours as well, because I think sometimes God has put a burden on our hearts he has stirred us. We jumped in, and we're all in. God used me. But then as life kind of does what it does, we begin to pull back a little. We say to ourselves, I have every intention. I'm going to get back into that. I just need to take a little breather from it. I need to take a little break, a little time off. And before you know it, a year has gone by, and five years have gone by, and 10 years have gone by. And like these guys, 16 years have gone by And you've never returned to that thing that God laid on your heart to be a part of. And so again, our friend Haggai, he begins here and he says in verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by this prophet. Notice the people here. They weren't saying that rebuilding the temple wasn't important. They weren't saying like, it doesn't matter. We don't need a temple. They were just saying, right now's not the time to work on the temple. They say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They certainly intend someday to get back to doing that which the Lord had laid on their heart to do. Just right now, there was just simply too much going on at this time for them to do it. Are you making the connection, perhaps, in your own life? The work started wonderfully. Again, Ezra 3 gives us a little bit of a snapshot. I just want to read this to you. This is how the work began. 3.10 says, Now when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the priests stood in their apparel with their trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with their cymbals. And they did that to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. The 50,000 people gathered, singing, For He is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. It started wonderfully. But as time passed, passed so too did the fervor that was in the hearts of these people. And so despite the glorious beginning, after two years, the work stopped. And then discouragement sent in. And then a lack of focus began to develop among those who were once on fire, men and women forgot. And it's gonna be Haggai's job to exhort these sort of lethargic individuals to get them back on task with God. And again, please don't forget, these weren't like the sinners of Israel. These were the called out remnant that had taken up that call to return to Jerusalem from Babylon hundreds of other thousands of others had no interest but these were the men and women that did and they these were the people that were the most committed to the lord and to the restoration of his holy city and yet something happened within them that i think we're at risk of it happening to us the fervor began to wane and as time passed they got caught up in their own affairs not bad affairs just other affairs. As time passed, they began to get distracted from what it was that God had stirred them to do. And they began instead to focus on those things they needed to do. I wonder how many of us could have that said of us this morning. It's not that we're unbelievers. Here we are on a Sunday morning. It's not even that we are sort of unconcerned believers. It's important to us, what's happening with people around the world and our faith is important to us. The problem is that we have just simply allowed ourselves to get too busy. That now we have a house, now we have a job, maybe we have children. We have a million other things that we need, to, that needs our attention. And we're saying to ourselves, you know, someday I am going to return to getting serious about those things that God has laid on our hearts someday, just not this day. We're given an indicator of what it was specifically that was crowding out the work of God in the lives of these people here in the book of Haggai. Look at verse 4. Haggai's question to them is, is it time for you to s- yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord, the temple, lies in ruins strangely while it wasn't the right time to build god's house it was the right time to build their own houses in fact there are some commentators that think the use of the plural for the word houses in verse 4 that that's not meant to communicate all the houses of all the jews that lived in jerusalem but rather the many houses of each of the individual jews that lived in jerusalem you see what i'm saying that they had, they had their beach house, they had their lake house, they had their regular house, and you know, and I got to spend time, you know, on those particular things. Either way, while they were investing in building their luxurious homes, a paneled house would be considered a luxury in that day. The house of God lay in ruins. Now, this we do need to be careful with this. Because the real problem of these individuals is not that they lived in paneled houses. The real problem was that they did so while the house of God lay in ruins. There's a saying that goes something like this, it is action is the outcome of desire. And what it means is the thing we really wanna do is the thing that we will do. While the thing that doesn't interest us as much is the thing either we rarely complete Or at the very least, we complete it with a whole lot less vigor. And the problem with these once on on fire followers of God is that they allowed their priorities to get off kilter. And so their comfort became their primary focus. And everything else, including the cause of God, became secondary in their lives. Have you noticed that tendency in your walk, particularly any of us that have been in Jesus for a long time? Have you noticed that tendency? Well, I have in my life. And I imagine a lot of us here have as well. And I think in, especially in an affluent culture like our own here in the United States, I think it's something that we need to continually push back against. Because again, action is the outcome Of desire. Their desire was to invest into themselves and to invest into the building of their own houses, not the Lord's. Now, I hope this morning that each of us are already making application to our own lives in ways other than the rebuild. I'm not going to say now, let's give a lot of money because we need to build a church building. That's not where I'm going with this. And I hope that we're all sort of taking. Uh, and making application to our lives in ways other than the literal rebuilding of a building for God. What we're really talking about this morning, what I'm hoping the Lord is speaking into our hearts, is things like this. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your resources? Where do you invest your energy? How about your mental capacity or even your emotional capacity? quotient what are you investing into is it the things of eternity or temporal things that are here today and are gone shortly thereafter what are you pouring yourself into and then pull back and look back in your life and say is that different from when i first came to the lord is that different from that time when it would have been said of me and I would have said to myself, man, I'm just on fire for Jesus. Have you noticed a change? Have you noticed sort of a waning that is taking place within you? I think the book of Haggai speaks into our lives. If you say, yeah, I've noticed that, I think Haggai speaks into our lives. And I certainly want it to speak into my life. I want to close this morning. It's a little bit earlier than normal, but it's by design. I want to close this morning with some words of wisdom from the lord jesus jesus said uh matthew chapter 5 through matthew chapter 7 we have what is called the sermon on the mount and in the sermon on the mount beginning about halfway through that sermon jesus said this he said do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." The people in Haggai, their heart had gone somewhere else. God had stirred their heart, but it had drifted elsewhere. Jesus continued, he said, "'No one can serve two masters, "'for either he will hate the one and love the other, "'or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. And then he said, but this, he said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. All those other things, don't worry about what you're going to eat, don't worry about what you're going to wear, and all those other things, he said, will be taken care of. Your job is to focus first and foremost on seeking the kingdom of God. And the people in this book of Haggai, they had done that for a bit, but as time went on, they got distracted. And so this morning, perhaps this story, this account, and we're just kind of jumping in right from the beginning. We haven't even unpacked the book very much yet. But maybe this story of these Israelites, maybe it resonates a bit with your own story. And maybe you see in your own journey with Christ a bit of a cooling where you yourself, you find yourself a little bit less passionate about the things that you once were passionate, where your priorities have become less about eternity and much more about those things that inevitably are going to pass away. This morning, we'll have a moment just to be quiet together to pray individually. This morning, I I hope that the words of Haggai will speak a word of challenge to each one of us to take inventory, to see what's really kind of going on within us. And if there's anything that causes concern to just say, you know what, Lord, this day I'm starting over again. So let's just take some time to be quiet. Let's just take some time to pray. And as as we continue sort of in this attitude of prayer, if you would like to just stand so that we can pray, I can pray with you as God's laying something on your hearts, why don't you do that? Why don't you just stand where you are? And Father, I I thank you for these men and women and the work that you're doing. I thank you for the work you're stirring in my heart afresh this morning. And Lord, uh, we confess, and maybe some that are um, still wrestling here with you, Lord, all of us, we confess that in some ways we've allowed our eyes to slide down from heaven and get so wrapped up in the things of this earth and that that's impacted our hearts a bit. And we haven't gone the way of sin necessarily, but we're just a little off from where we want to be with you. And so Lord, thank you that your Holy Spirit continues to stir in the work that you did in the hearts of these people standing that you stirred there. Lord, keep doing that. We invite you to do that. We want you to do that in our lives, Lord. And so please, Lord, bless your word to each one of our hearts. This day we ask in Jesus' name, amen.